Thank you so much and good morning. It's uh, good to be in worship with you, uh, with you today. Um, we have a lot of work to do in uh, what we're going after today, and um, and uh, we we ask God to uh, we're asking God to bless us as we uh, as we do go through um, this subject today. Uh, so um, there, there are fewer controversial and confusing issues in our culture today um, than sex and gender. A um, lot of conversation around it, a lot of um, ins and outs and people saying certain things. It is one of the more controversial and confusing issues in our culture. And quite frankly, I feel um, relatively unqualified and inadequate to, to actually do this. I don't have a medical degree, I don't have a psychology degree, and yet I believe that God has something to say about it. Uh, th- this is a complex issue that we're dealing with. I mean, if you talk about it and you say something that is, um, that's matching and uh, complementary to the norms that God has given, then you can easily be canceled. If you don't say something, then you're viewed as being afraid or kind of your head buried in the sand and you quickly become irrelevant. What we hope to do in this message and in the message next week is to strike a balance that we might embody um, Jesus uh, as we see him in John 1 and 14. John says he's full of grace and truth. Now, now again, this is a really big subject that we're going after, and there is no possible way that we can tackle every single detail. There's no way we can answer every single question. Now, what we're going to talk about is probably, for some, is very personal. I talked to a man after service, the, the 915, and again, there was this sense of this is personal because a family member um, is struggling with this. Or maybe you have friends who are struggling with this, or maybe you're in the house today and you yourself is struggling, you're struggling with what we're talking about today. I have to admit that there are so many limitations to this particular message, and I hope that you'll offer grace for those limitations. I believe that God has something to say, and God's word is still relevant to cultural issues. The ultimate or the real cry of our hearts is that we need God's help. We need God's help. So, so when we talk about sex and gender, you're going to ask the question, where is this in Titus? Like everything else is a bit like, well, I, full disclosure that you're not going to find sex and gender per se in the book of Titus. But what I'm doing, I'm hitching this to the larger concept of what it means to be an exile in our culture, what it means to hold on to biblical values and that, that it's okay to look different in a culture that's going one way, God still, um, God still is uh, serious about 
what he has to say. So you're not going to find gender in, um, you're not going to find um, uh, sex as we're talking about it, uh, and gender in Titus. But what I do want to offer you is a three-chapter gospel on the issue of human sexuality and gender. Now, this message is really just the beginning attempt to unravel the spaghetti. And um, we, we can talk uh, about the issue of human sexuality. When we talk about it, we must actually go back to the beginning when God created the world and he created human beings. And so here's the roadmap for today. We're going to talk about God um, uh, creation ordered. And then we're going to talk about creation disordered. And then we're going to co- talk about creation reordered. And then how you and I can actually participate in the reordering that, uh, that God desires. So let's talk about creation ordered. Creation ordered. God, when God created the world, uh, he created it just as he intended it to be. He created plants and he created animals and he created the sun and he created the moon. He created the stars and he gave an evaluation and that evaluation was it is good. And then God created human beings. He created human beings. I want, you to, I want us to read the text. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. You really can't get lost because it's on the first page. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. And this is what it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and Female. Now, before we dive into the male and female theme, I, I want to talk about, I want to talk very briefly about two important foundational principles or two foundational points. And first is the image of God. The text says that God created humanity in his image. So when we talk about the image of God, what are we talking about? Well, I want to give you several aspects of being created in the image of God. The first is that God shared his dominion. That, that God delegated his dominion to humanity. God reigns and rules over all creation. And when he created Adam and Eve, he shared that dominion. And so now we, uh, we, actually, we actually steward the earth under the reign and rule of God. So one of the things that it means is that God shared his dominion with us. Another thing that it means is that you and I are relational beings, that, that you and I, we We can feel the fullness of our humanity, and we can feel the fullness of who we are in community, not in isolation. 
Another thing it means, it means that God shared his creativity, that you and I, we can express our creativity. That's a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. God is creator, and he shared that with you and me. So you and I can um, express our creativity. Another thing, it means that you and I are representatives of God in the world. So that's part of what it means to be created in the image of God that we are, and don't, don't shoot me for this, is that you and I are small idols of God. In other words, that you and I enter into the world and when we go to our jobs and when we show up in our families, we are representatives of God. We are small pictures of God. We are not God, but we reflect God, at least we should, everywhere we go. Another thing it means, it means that you and I are volitional, moral, emotional beings. That you and I have the ability to make choices, that God animates our will and we can choose right and wrong. That you and I are volitional and moral and emotional beings. Now there's a very clear implication of what it means to be created in the image of God. And that implication is that every human being deserves dignity, honor, and respect. That every single human being is deserving of dignity, honor, and respect. This is important because the way, this is a theological principle that goes throughout the scripture. The way we treat God's humanity is technically the way we treat God. You see, this is a super, super important foundational principle that you and I must hold on to. The second foundational principle and point is the goodness of creation. That, that, that uh, when we look at God speaking the world into existence, there's this recurring phrase that it is good. And the reason that's, an import, that's important is because God and God alone is the one who defines what is good. God and God alone is the one who defines what is normal, not me and not you. Now, those creation may not agree with the way God is running the world. Maybe you and I don't agree with the way he's, um, he's kind of set up the norms. Maybe we don't agree with what he calls good. It doesn't make it less true just because we decide that we don't want to align our wills with God's. And one of the aspects of the goodness of the image of God in humanity is that God created our bodies. He created our bodies. Let's read the text again. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created, uh, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So when the text says that God created male and female, we have to ask the question, what does it mean? Because this is extremely important for us to understand. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them both with a sex. Now, I'm not talking about intercourse. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about biology. When God created Adam and Eve, and this is the way I'll refer to sex throughout the rest of this message until, unless I explicitly give another definition or another meaning. That is, sex equals biological. Sex equals biological. So this means when God created Adam and Eve, he created their bodies as unique and distinct. And first, when, we, uh, when he created their bodies, he created them perfectly male and female. Now, we call this, being, he, we, we call this a male and female um, kind of distinction. We call Adam and Eve are dimorphic beings, biologically male and female. So when he created Adam, he created Adam with a body with XY chromosomes, higher levels of testosterone, a penis and testicles, more than likely muscular features. When he created Eve, he created Eve with XX chromosomes and wider hips and a vagina and breasts and higher levels of estrogen and probably more than likely, feminine features. So when God created Adam and Eve, he created two sexes, not one, not three. There's not a third sex that God created. Now, again, time does not permit in this moment to talk about uh, intersex. There's no, there's no, uh, the intersex, there's no time is, uh, we don't have enough time. And intersex is where a man or a woman have um, ambiguous uh, body parts, where you might have a man who has both a vagina and a penis. And that, that is, that we, again, we don't have time. There are so many combinations. This is such a complex, issue, a, a complex issue. A woman might be born without a uterus. And so there's this sense where there's a level of complexity, but there's two biological sexes. Two biological sexes. This is objectivity. This is not subjective. This is... Um, this is biology. And there's, there's, there's no disagreement around this. If you go to the medical field, you go to the psychology field, there is no debate that, that we are dimorphic beings. N not that we need psychology to actually put a stamp of approval. I think it's helpful. The American Psychological Association says sex refers to a person's biological status and is typically categorized as male and female. There are a few indicators of biological sex, including sex chromosomes, gonads, internal reproductive organs, and external genitalia. It's just that psychology finally catches up with God and says that this is what it means to be male and females. Our bodies are a part of the creative goodness of God. 
And we should thank God for our bodies. We are not souls trapped in a body waiting to be liberated. Obviously, we should not glorify our bodies and we should not idolize our bodies, but we can and should reverently thank God for our bodies. We should reverently thank God for the creativity that God has given us in our bodies. Now, I struggled. Uh, I, when I was growing up, I struggled with my physical body. I struggled with my physical identity. I, like, I am vertically challenged, and I got a big head, and I have slanted eyes, and I asked God countless number of times, why did you make me this way? And I struggled with that. I would have preferred to be tall, dark, and handsome. But God made me short and big-headed. And yet, there's something that you and I must admit that God is creative. Look at this room. This room is full of God's creative order, even in the creation of our bodies. Some of you with long hair and short hair and perfect noses and perfect bodies, and we thank God for our bodies. But not only did he create our bodies, he also created gender. Now, this is a little bit more complicated, a little bit more complex. This is a little bit, maybe even harder to understand because um, gender is, is intangible, It is more subjective, and it's not objective, like uh, I can see your body parts, and you can see mine, and, and, and gender is a little bit more subjective. And this is what we mean by gender, and we have a number of different scholars. Mark, uh, Mark Yarhouse, who is a Christian psychologist, he defines gender this way, a sense of self and what it means to feel male and female. It is the psychology and the sociology of what it means to feel male and female. It is the psychology, the meaning of our psych- the psychology of our biology. So there's this sense where gender is intangible, it is subjective, but it is no less real than biology. So not only did God create sex, that is biology, which is objective, but he also created gender. It is our understanding of what it means to be male. It is our understanding of what it means to be female. Well, God creates that. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. And there are two Uh, Two ways we can see this. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, slept, took one of his ribs and closed closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man, to the man. Then the man said, this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken 
out of man. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, in this verse, we see the creation of gender, what it means to be male and female, and how it plays itself out in the world. Now, Eve is taken from Adam, and God brought Eve to Adam, and he called her woman. Now, the interesting thing is the word woman is not related to Eve's biology. It's not related to the higher levels of estrogen. It is not related to her reproductive organs. It is not related to anything physical about her. Adam didn't name her on the basis of body parts. He actually, he didn't name her based on biology. Actually, Adam felt his sense of maleness as he interacted with Eve's femaleness. It, is, it was his sense of self. But there's another uh, indication here is verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The text gives us a description of how marriage works. And one of the ways that marriage works is that a man will leave his father and mother and be united and he would cleave and hold fast to his wife. Now, the interesting thing about that is he leaves his family, he leaves his father and mother not based on any kind of biology. He leaves because... God stitched into his genes, G-E-N-E-S, not 501. This is the way a man ought to act, that God created. We're going to get to what society says in a few minutes, but, but this is the way a man should work and vice versa, including Females. So what Adam is doing, Adam is actually living into his gendered role as a husband that God gave him. Again, you can't have a wife without a husband, and you can't have a husband without a wife. It has nothing to do with biology. It has everything to do with gender and a sense of self. Now, the beauty of this is that God gave this only to human beings. He did not give this to animals. I mean, animals have biological parts, but they don't have a sense of their maleness or femaleness in a sense. They, there's, this bio, there's the biological part, but not this sense of self that God has given us. So when chapter 1 draws to a close, we see the last verse of chapter 1. God says that everything that he made was very good. So the ordering of our bodies is good because God says it. The ordering of our gender, that our gender corresponds, our psychology corresponds with our biology. God says it's good. It's very good. So there's this sense where, where the creation was ordered and God called it very good. But something happened. 
Something happened that dislocated and uh, distorted God's good creation. And to see that, we have to go to Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 kind of gives us when um, sin and distortion and dislocation was introduced into the world. So chapter 3, this is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast on the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat, uh, we may eat of any, we may eat of the fruit of the trees uh, in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And verse 7, I'll just finish it. The eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So this is what we call the fall. So God creation, God's creation was ordered and perfect. And because Adam and Eve turned away from God and decided that moral autonomy was better than God's loving authority, there was a fall from grace. They undermined God's authority in their lives because they wanted limitless wisdom. They, they wanted to be God. They wanted to make up their own rules because, because they disobeyed God, they experienced guilt and shame and brokenness in their lives. They became self-willed. and They became morally autonomous. They wanted to live life the way they wanted, it, they wanted to live. I mean, they felt guilt and judgment because they had done something wrong. They crossed the line and their disobedience introduced disorder in the world. A world that was ordered by a loving God is now dislocated and disordered. And we feel this tension every single day. We feel the tension of God's intent for goodness in the world and the brokenness that comes from the fall. Listen, I don't know the depths of the fall, but I do know that every aspect of our existence, every aspect of our lives was touched by the fall. Every aspect of our lives was dislocated by the fall. Something is not right in our bodies. Something is not right in our sense of self. Our bodies are broken. Our gender is broken. Things don't work like God intended. There's a tension that exists between the creational goodness of God and the fall of humanity. Something is not right. We feel it every day, including our sexual brokenness, including our sexual, uh, sexual, uh, human sexuality. We feel it every day. 
And so the fall shows up in disordered sexuality. The fall shows up in how our bodies have been impacted. Our bodies groan every single day. It groans from genetics that are passed down by our parents and grandparents. It groans from our biology that things don't work the way they should. They groan from the developmental physical limitations that we have. They groan because of the sickness that we experience on a regular basis. They groan because our bodies are aging and we feel it every single day. Our bodies don't work. Conditions pass down and things that actually other people do to us like rape and sexual misconduct and human trafficking and adultery and premarital sex and pornography. All of that is, is, is a disordered, a dislocation of the goodness, the creative goodness of God. There, there are days I look around the room and I say, God, there is so much biological inequity. Look at all these tall people in the world. Look at all these people with hair in the world. So much biological inequity. And there's this sense where where the fall touches every aspect of our lives. Whether it's men actively... um, men, Men actively participating in a gay lifestyle with another man or a woman with a woman, it's, it's, it's a part of the distortion. God, God wanted something different. And then there are people who don't feel at home in their bodies, especially around this issue of gender. There are men who, in our world, in our culture, and maybe even in this room, physically and biologically, you're male and a man, and yet you feel like a female. Maybe there are women in this room who are biologically female, but they feel like like they're male. There's an incongruence, and there's an actual name for that, and that name is gender dysphoria. And this is when a person's psychology doesn't match their biology. What Mark Mark Yarhouse says, a person's psychological and emotional gender is incongruent with his or her biological sex. So so we you say, well Marvin, I, I don't I don't really understand this. And And friends, I I don't fully grasp it either, but I do grasp incongruence where the biology and the psychology don't match, and you know this as well. There are individuals probably in this room or in our culture who feel like someone is always after them, but they are perfectly safe. There are individuals who who, who know this, you know this very well, that, that individuals think they are sick physically or are going to be sick, but when they go to the doctor, the doctor says that you literally are perfectly healthy. We, we, un, we understand this. 
the incongruence between biology and psychology. They're individuals who are grossly or vastly underweight, but yet they feel like if they eat a piece of bread or a small piece of meat, that they will become fat and become overweight. We, we understand the incongruence between psychology and biology, and gender dysphoria is that that disparity, that incongruence between the two. God says, this is the way I created your biology. I've given you a corresponding gender and psychology to match, but the fall actually distorts that. So yes, it's, it's, it's caused uh, gender dysphoria, gender confusion. It's caused by the, the fall, and, and yet um, there we have to ask, are there other causes? And psychologists and others, they say it's unknown. It's unknown. One scholar says that uh, once you've met one transgender, you've met one transgender. There are no two transgender persons, human beings, that are alike and experience the same causes. But I think there are some considerations that we can um, loosely hold on to. And the first one is deception. That just like uh, the, the tempter, Satan, uh, deceived Eve, that I think also that the enemy loves to deceive and he loves to confuse and he loves to distort and he loves to dislocate that, that, that part of his job is to lie. Part of his job is to deceive. Part of his job is to confuse. And so one of the things I would offer you as consideration as a cause that, that Satan confuses and deceives. But I think there's another, another one is the, um, the false masculinity and femininity. That, that you and I play a part, I think, in some of the confusion, and that is that, that, that we have a tendency, whether male or female, we tell our boys that you better not cry because boys don't cry. Men don't cry. You remain stoic, and you never let them see you cry. Well, you're probably not going to like Jesus very much, and you're probably not going to like half the men in the Bible. We tell our boys that, 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 that you ought to fish and hunt, and you ought to have guns and knives. There's nothing wrong with all of that, but we hyper-emphasize gender to the point where it might lead to confusion. What if one of our sons comes home and says, you know something, I'm trying out for mu the musical theater. And we have a tendency as men, what do you mean you're trying out for musical theater? That's not for boys. Play football, play soccer, play basketball. And then you have boys attempting to, like, man, I really like musical theater. I really want to try. Or we have girls where we are, we are we're, we're teaching our girls, you're just a nurturer and that's it. That, that, that you are, um, you, you shouldn't be aggressive. You shouldn't be competitive. We even have a name for that. We call them tomboys. 
And I think there's a participation from us in contributing to the, maybe the confusion. That somehow men are supposed to go out and hunt and, and women are to stay home. And like, listen, when that bat got in our house, I was not doing bats. Tanya is, Tanya is math and science. I'm humanities. I just don't do rodents like that. And she did a great job. And I don't mind admitting that. We were talking, we were talking uh, this weekend, uh, and Carolyn said, listen, you listen, just listen. I know there are gender differences, but when there's a mouse in the trap, let my husband get it. Somebody say, I hear you. No, wait a minute. Like, no, you can, both can do it, right? So there's this sense of false masculinity and femininity. And then there's um, sexual trauma and abuse that comes, that causes confusion. Now let me say this, that struggling with gender confusion and gender dysphoria is not a sin. And when we act on the struggle, just like with any other sexual brokenness, it's when it becomes sin. When we give in to the temptation of lust, that's when it becomes sin. So the reality is this. We're all broken sexually. We're all broken in some way or another. The fall has touched your life and it's touched my life. And I think we have a tendency to point out there as opposed to saying, no, let, let me keep my eyes on my side of the street. That we all are broken. Now, you're broken in a different way than I'm broken. And I'm broken in a different way than you're broken. But the reality is that the fall has touched every single one of us and caused us to be broken. And in our brokenness, there's a need, and that is we need a savior. We need someone to reorder the disorder. We need someone to relocate the dislocation. And that's the third move in this chapter, which is creation reordered. Creation reordered. I want you to turn over to um, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we get a chance to see a little bit of how, we get a chance to see how creation is ordered. There's, we, we can see this theme of creation being reordered all over the New Testament after in the Gospels when Jesus dies, but also after Jesus' resurrection. But here's a clear place where we see it, Genesis, or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you, were, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are uh, we, for, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So sin disordered our world. And Christ came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a horrible death, but participated in a glorious resurrection to reorder what Adam and Eve disordered. We, we were all dead in our sins. In other words, you and I could not respond to God. So relationship with Jesus is not about religion. We could not respond to God. It took the spirit of God animating our will, animating our minds, and animating our bodies to respond to God through Jesus. That we were sinful, we were under the wrath of God, and God in his mercy, in his love says, I, I want to reorder the disorder. I want to relocate the dislocation, and so I'm sending my son. Just like Adam, we all refused to obey God, but the Spirit opened our eyes and we experience the mercy. The interesting thing is that Jesus gave us mercy. He redeemed us in a human body. Redeemed us. He reordered our lives in a human body. Jesus wins redemption in a body. And in that body, he brings to us in our sexual brokenness, he brings to us healing. In our sexual brokenness, he brings to us forgiveness. In our sexual brokenness, he brings to us grace. In our sexual brokenness, he brings us hope. There is no brokenness. There is no sexual brokenness that Jesus will not touch. I want you to hear that because some, you may be here today and someone has said to you, God will never touch your life because of what you've done or where you've been. Let me, I want you to hear this loud and clear that the Savior came for our brokenness. All of it. He came for our brokenness. Now, though, though Jesus did not heal every single body, that is, human body, but the bodies he did heal is the kingdom, his kingdom, his reign and rule showed up. And people were, their eyes were turned toward God. And even individuals who are dealing with gender dysphoria, whether you, if you are a believer, if you're dealing with it, 
God wants to even take you where you are right now and give you hope and forgiveness and grace so that when people see the healing and, the, and Jesus meeting you there in your struggle, that people around you might see that God is powerful, that God has shown up in the struggle. And even if you're not a believer and you're struggling, he says, I will meet you in the struggle. I will be there with you. Now, I don't know all the reasons why God allows it. We, don't, we have a larger framework that it's a part of the fall, but I don't know all the reasons why that God allows the struggle the way he does. I do know he reminds us that we're created in his image, even in our brokenness. That the fall distorted and disfigured the image, but it didn't destroy the image. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean? How can followers of Jesus, so we have creation ordered, creation disordered, creation reordered by the death of Jesus. How can we follow uh, how can followers of Jesus partner with God in this reordering? I want to give you two responses that you and I can have. The first response is um, a cultural response. And what I mean by our cultural response is that um, there is a sexual revolution that's happening in our world. And when that happens, guess what? We must say what God says. We must go back to the beginning and say what God, you know, we, will, we, will we get canceled? We might, I don't know, but we have, to be, we have to say what God says, that God created our bodies. He created our bodies to be good, that sin distorted our bodies, even to the point where all these brokennesses show up, but God's original intent was always that our psychology would match our biology and not the other way around. And we have to be prophetic even when we say that. Now, what I mean by prophetic, that we, we say this is truth. But even the way we tell the truth has to be kind and has to be loving and has to be graceful. Even the way we tell the truth, the way we show up with the truth, it cannot be unloving. It cannot be unkind. It cannot be hostile. It cannot be uh, a continuation of the brokenness that we see in our world. That Jesus comes and reorders. He reorders our mind and he reorders our hearts and he, he reorders the way we show up in the midst of brokenness in our world. And so there's a cultural response where we are continue to be prophetic. We continue to preach the Bible. We continue to say this is the way God intended it to be. But I think there's a second response, and that is a pastoral response. And a pastoral response, and I, I wish I had time to read it. I'm, I'm just going to give you the address. It's Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 38. It is, the, it is Philip. Uh, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the, and, and the principles that I'll share here, they are simply uh, derived from that, that story and that passage. So the first way you and I can show up in a pastoral way is to be attentive to the movements of God. 
So, so what I mean by that is, is that, that Philip heard from God, the Spirit um, moved him, and the Spirit um, nudged him to go down to Gaza, and when you get there, I will show you what to do. And so the way we show up is every day of our lives, we're going to meet people, and we're going to meet people who are broken, and, and we ourselves are broken, but the Spirit of God, we want to listen to his nudges and his promptings in our lives, and we want to move the way he moves. And then when we show up, the way he asks us to show up, it is going to be the fruit of the Spirit, loving and peaceful and kind and joyful in the midst of brokenness. So be attentive to the movement of God. Here's a second way you and I can be pastoral on this particular issue, get close. So so the Spirit of God says, Philip, I want you to go join the chariot of of the Ethiopian eunuch. And that's what Philip does. He begins to walk alongside. He gets close to the eunuch. And you and I on this issue Whatever brokenness it is, we have to get close. We have to understand the people of the struggle. Time, it's time out for pointing fingers over there and being hostile to them over there. And yet, it's about you and I getting close enough to understand, to listen. Here's the third. It might sound a little bit like the, the second is get even closer. And what I mean by that is Philip went from walking alongside the chariot to actually joining and getting in the chariot. So this is conversation close. Having a real conversation with someone who struggles with gender dysphoria, with someone who struggles with sexual brokenness. You and I can almost tell individuals who've never ever had a conversation with a transgender human being, a transgender person, just listen to the way they talk. It's it's demeaning, it's dishonoring, whether it's a transgender person or whether it's another person dealing with any other kind of sexual brokenness. It is hostile. It is angry. And you can say, yep, probably never talked to about that person's life. So get even closer. And what Philip does, he shows Jesus. Shows Jesus. That's, that's all that we're asking that's all that we're asking to do, show Jesus that, 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 that anyone who's dealing with any kind of sexual brokenness, whether it's, tra- uh, um, whether it's a gender dysphoria, confusion or otherwise, our job is to not judge and condemn. Our job is to show up and show up with Jesus. And what Philip does next, he, he invites him into the family of God. He invites him into the family of God. I say, whoa, wait a minute, there's, there's water. He says, what hinders me from being baptized now? And baptism is being identified with Jesus and being identified with Jesus in the body of Jesus. I hope and pray 
that we would be the kind of church that has both a grace and truth response. I hope that we're the kind of church that individuals with sexual brokennesses, including gender dysphoria, they feel welcomed here. I pray that we're that kind of church. I pray that the way we show up is both loving and kind and truthful as well. I think another and final pastoral response is is uh, not not overemphasizing gender, but overemphasizing the kingdom of God. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Our job is to be Jesus to a broken world. Hands and feet, the way we talk, the way we show up. For some here today, you might have to go to work tomorrow, and maybe there is a person in your job, on your job, who is struggling with gender dysphoria. And you have shunned them in your mind. And maybe today is a day of repentance and a day to say, I will show up differently. I will show up as Jesus in human flesh, partnering with the God of the universe to bring his shalom and reordering to a broken world. I'm going to pray for us. And if you have a need uh, or a concern, uh, our deacons, elders, prayer team members will be down front uh, to pray with you and pray for you. We also want to remember the city of Memphis in our prayers. Um, Horrendous, horrendous. Talk about dishonor and talk about dishonor and unsanctifying human life. Um, We got a glimpse of that this week. And so we want to pray for our friends, our churches in the Memphis area as they make sense and they show up as the people of God in Memphis. So let's pray. Father, thank you for creating our bodies and creating our gender. It's good. You said it was good. But sin um, and us falling in the garden is the best way for us to understand the causation of all the brokenness that we experience today. And um, we thank you for sending your son to reorder the disorder, to relocate the dislocation. Thank you for his death on the cross and the beginning of bringing shalom to the world. And we ask that you would teach us how to look at you as we shepherd people who struggle with gender dysphoria. We pray that um, just like the shepherds, um, the crook in their staff uh, was about remaining close to the sheep, we pray that you would help us remain close to the sheep of your people so that we might have, number one, a, a cultural response that we will tell your truth, we will tell your truth 
compassionately and boldly. And yet we will tell your truth <clears throat> in a pastoral way. We will get close and we'll get even, even closer, conversation close. And we'll show people Jesus. So pray your blessing over your people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. And um, if you remember, if you have a need or someone to, you want someone to pray with you, we'll be down front.